So good morning, everyone. This is um, this is our next podcast in the series where we're talking to um, inspirational leaders that have set up patient groups. And the reason why we're doing this is that across our business, um, patients need to be absolutely at the centre of everything that we do. And I'm really lucky to be able to talk to Emily Crossley today. Emily is the co-founder and CEO of Duchenne UK, um, but Emily has taken um, patient experience and how to change the outcomes to incredible levels. She's absolutely one of my heroines, so I feel very lucky that I've pushed Caitlin out of this conversation and I'm, <laughs> and I'm able to talk to Emily, who currently has her head in her hands, um, <laughs> because I know she hates this sort of thing, but she has achieved, she and her team have achieved an incredible amount. And as everyone knows who's listening to these podcasts, it's um, these things are fascinating, not just because we understand the patient experience, but it's about how the stakeholders, everyone who sits around the patient, how their experience was formed and how we can change that experience for the better. So I'd encourage you all to listen and get in touch with um, any ways that you think you can help whether it's in the UK or across the world, because as you'll hear, Emily has done a lot across the world, because it's important that we amplify these voices. So, Emily, mm -hmm. and actually I'm, I'm smiling, but in my heart, I'm dreading this next question that I know I've got, I've got to ask it because it's the hardest bit. And it, I know it's the hardest bit for you, the hardest bit of, of any any discussion around this tell us how you got here emily because when your son eli was born you were working in tv your your family was perfect it is still perfect but um a bolt from the blue came didn't it it certainly did claire and this is certainly not the way that i had imagined my life um, developing. I was a correspondent and presenter for Channel 4 News at the time and almost out of the blue my eldest son, my firstborn child, was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, um, a disease that I had never heard of but which meant that I went overnight from covering other people's tragedies to really being at the centre of my own and just being completely destroyed by it. Um, and I'll never forget that moment of diagnosis when the doctor said, you know, your son has something called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. He will be in a wheelchair by the age of 10 or 11. He will be completely paralysed by his teenage years in what should be the prime of his life. And life expectancy is early 20s and there's nothing we can do. And that's that. Um, and then they sent us back out into the world. And, you know, I, I was just completely destroyed by that diagnosis um you know and I and I often say to people that I wish that the doctors had given me a diagnosis too I wish they just said to me Emily you have relapsing remitting grief disorder or in fact there is something called chronic sorrow um which was um described in the 80s I think and, and I think 
parents should be given a diagnosis because the doctors, you know, I wish they just said to me, you are going to have to find strength that you never knew you had because you are going to have to learn how to hold your son's hand and watch him slowly slip towards death while making that okay for him. And, you know, my son is 14 now and there is no way of describing to you the horrifying pain of some of the conversations that I have with him, you know, and he is an incredible young man. He is stoic. He is emotionally mature. You know, he's doing his GCSEs. He's the lead singer in a band. He's auditioned for the school play. You know, he goes to school and back on his own in his electric chair. You know, he's, he's a, he's phenomenal, but that doesn't diminish in any way the horrific impact that Duchenne is having on his life and on the lives of, you know, 300,000 mainly boys around the world. And, you know, a lot of mums who I met when I was diagnosed, we've all been on this very similar journey of, of, of the devastating impact of diagnosis, then trying to adapt to life, you know, and then you have this sort of period of time where the boys seem to improve a little bit, you know, and then they start to decline. And once that happens, there's nothing anyone can do. And, and it's terrifying. And your instincts as a parent to really protect your child are you know destroyed by the onslaught of this disease and you just feel so powerless and I suppose it was that sense of powerlessness that drove my husband and I in the early days to think well what can we do to change this you know are we going to accept this diagnosis or are we going to try and fight for our son and and you know we made that difficult decision to, to fight um, and did a lot of work a lot of groundwork and you know 12 months later we set up a patient organization and my feet haven't really touched the ground since since that day. So who looks after you in all of this? Um, that's a good question. Um, my husband is amazing. Um, my mum is amazing. I have amazing friends and family. My parents-in-law are amazing. And I do have therapy. I've had therapy ever since he was diagnosed and that has probably kept me sane. Um, I've been in and out of hospital with panic attacks. Um, I mean, the stress on the caregiver and the mother and the father is is enormous. It's not just the child, you know, who's affected by this disease. It, it ricochets around the whole family, you know, the immediate family and the extended family. And now I'm having to, you know, deal with the emotional fallout on my two girls, you know, who are, you know, incredible sisters to Eli and who love him desperately, you know, and who, who find, you know, this heartbreaking um and trying to manage their emotions during this as well it's 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 a lot to deal with and also to be fighting on behalf of a whole community you know to push research there's it, there's a lot um you know but I got a, I got a letter from a mum the other day who sadly her son had passed away and she'd sent us a donation and I just wrote to her saying you know as a mother you'll understand what my daily struggles are um, just to get the care I need for my son. And then on top of that, the daily struggles of being in drug development. Um, and it really does mean so much to, to me and my co-founder, Alex, that parents choose to support us because we don't feel alone in it. You know, we feel like we have an army of committed parents who are giving up their time to fundraise for us and to help us achieve our mission to end Duchenne. So... When you look at the Emily before diagnosis, were you, were you a scientist? What, what was your background? <laughs> oh, that makes me laugh, Claire. No, I mean, I'm a, 
you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a modern history graduate. Uh, <laughs> oh, so that was helpful with the drug development yeah. piece then. Very very helpful when you're talking about AAV microdystrophin. Um, I mean, it was a huge learning curve. And actually, the first thing we did as an organisation wasn't to employ somebody in fundraising. It was to employ a research director. And I very quickly, Alex, my co-founder and I, we threw ourselves into this world. We travelled the world. We met people. We created an amazing scientific advisory board. You know, because we... In that, in that, first, in that first year, you're dealing with the diagnosis, you're dealing with the ramifications you don't have a scientific background and this is a really hard disease to understand mm -hmm. and to to look at the landscape so within a year you'd set up something mm -hmm. did you know what you were setting up no I mean I, ha I had no idea in a way <laughs> and uh, I, I did worry very much that you know a modern graduate a modern history graduate who was a journalist wasn't really that well equipped you know, to run a patient organisation. But but as it turns out, being able to articulate your message and being able to articulate what the patient needs and what the charity needs is, is very important. Um, and so it did stand me in very good stead. Um, but I think there was definitely from Alex and I, you know, there was a huge amount of naivety because, of course, we had no idea how complicated and challenging drug development was. But I think that naivety really helped power us through the early days because, you know, we didn't have that, charity legacy thing of seeing all the obstacles we didn't know the obstacles were there so we were just like right well we're just going to do this you know we're going to land our plane on the runway and you need you can get on the board or you can get out of the way and that's kind of what we did so um you know we we discovered that um when, when our sons were diagnosed there was very little research but there were a couple of things coming into the clinic and we were trying to get our boys onto this trial and we found out that they were actually turning trials away in the UK because they didn't have enough doctors and nurses to run them there were only two real trial sites and they were at capacity bursting point so we held a big meeting we did a lot of research about what we could do and we came up with an idea to set up what's now called the DMD hub which is a network of 11 clinical trial sites that will be fully operational for Duchenne trials and we didn't want to choose the sites in terms of geographical location. We didn't want to just go for an even spread around the UK because we know that parents are willing to travel with research. What we wanted to do was find the sites that we knew farmer would have confidence to go to because there's no point in us choosing a site in Timbuktu that no one's going to go to because they don't have faith in the clinical team. So we really did our homework and um, we identified these sites and we've invested four million pounds. And at the time, I remember um, the CEO of another patient organisation saying to me, well, of course, Emily, you can't, you know, patient organisations don't fund doctors and nurses and physiotherapists. That's not the role of a patient organisation. Um, we didn't know that. And we just thought, well, we're just going to do that and we'll see how it goes. And now we're in a position where we pump primed those 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 posts so we were paying 100 up front and then the money tapered down and so today we've got sites at Alderhey and leeds children's hospital where the trust are now paying for those posts because the money has come in from industry the money has come in from the trials and there's a sustainability model there so i think yeah. the ignorance in terms of what charities historically could and couldn't do helped us break down barriers and, and really just do what we wanted to do so i'm interested in that in that pivot because right along uh, along tr the track of of me knowing you and and the charity it seems like um things things are different so you're you're not 
I'm not saying all patient groups do this, but as you said, as as those people said, you know, that that's not the role of a patient group. Mm. What was it that made you think, actually, I just I just want to be very action orientated and this is my roadblock. So let's move that and let's see what the next roadblock is. What do you think it is? Is it your drive and determination? Is it the environment you found you the the um, clinical trials environment? Can you put your finger on it? What it was that drove it forward in a different way? Um, I think it's just that lived experience of being the patient and being on the front line of that experience and knowing how to turn that experience and frustration into change. Um, I think that that that's basically it. I mean, we were lucky enough to be able to raise phenomenal amounts of money relative to our size. Um, so I think we've raised something like 17 million pounds in nine years, by the way, with no fundraising staff up until a couple of years ago. Um, you know, and Alex and I really worked so, so hard and we have some amazing support to do that. But it was really using that patient experience with some of that money to leverage that money to the very maximum that it could be leveraged, you know, and to to really target it in the areas where we thought we could have most benefit. You know, and at the end of the day, when your child is diagnosed with a life limiting, devastating disease, you want to know what treatments there are for him and you want to know where the clinical trials are happening. So you may have the opportunity of getting your son onto a potentially, um, you know, a potential medicine and not have to wait five years to access it because that's how long it takes, you know, for, for drugs to, to get approved and reimbursed. And um, we just don't have that time. We, we, you know, we're living with a, a ticking clock on our shoulders and we just didn't have time to wait. Um, and it was really knowing that that's what patients wanted that drove Alex and I to really push for, for the DMD hub and, and, you know, invest so much of our time and money in it. Do you feel more optimistic about the options available for Eli? And other boys? Um, I think there's two parts of that question. Do I feel optimistic for the community? Absolutely. The pipeline is bursting with uh, potential treatments. You know, um, we invested $5 million in a, in a biotech, solid biosciences in the US, and they were the first company to dose to boys with gene therapy. And, you know, the doctor said to me when Eli was diagnosed, forget gene therapy, that's not going to happen in his lifetime. Yeah. And now we have um, three other companies developing gene therapy and Pfizer have now dosed their first patient in the UK with gene therapy, thanks to the work of the hub. Um, you know, so do I feel optimistic? I feel hugely optimistic. Um, for my son, well, he's 14 now and a lot of the clinical trials are targeted at the very young boys you know the ability to do the six minute walk test is is you know often an inclusion criteria my my son can't walk that far now so you know it's 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 a difficult time it's a difficult time for me um wondering what impact if any i'm gonna actually have on my son you know, I know we're impacting future generations for sure, no doubt about that. But but my son, I don't I don't know, and and but I I don't really have a choice. I I keep going for him, um, but I don't genuinely don't know wh whether he will accept. We, treatment. we never we never 
though, do we? I mean, I, I know it's it's um, it's probably small comfort, but when you look at uh, the response of Pfizer again to creating a, a COVID vaccine, which normally takes four years and they managed to pull it out the bag because there was direction towards an end point mm -hmm. and they managed to pull it out the bag in, in less than a year. Things can change, um, but I recognise that um, it's, it's challenging. And we we look forward to helping you on Foundation Day. And I open this up to anyone who's listening to this. Um, give us your your website or your email address that that people can get in touch if they either want to donate or they have any comments. OK, thank you so much, Claire. Yeah, it's uh, www.duchenneuk.org and I'm just simply emily at duchenneuk.org. And, and these guys will channel any comments from anywhere in the world to the right place in other countries. Um, and as always, I thank you for for your, what can I say, honesty and uh, experience and being able to, to talk about it. I know it's difficult. Thank you so much for having me on, Claire, and I really appreciate everything that you, you are doing to help us. You know, we are a very lean organisation um, and we've really benefited from, from your expertise and guidance. So uh, thank you very much and thank you for giving me this opportunity.